Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 357. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in the day show. First up is an interview with Rajan Khanna. Now, Rajan, I don't know if many people can remember or, or remember. Raj is a great narrator on Starship Sova. Hasn't he just wrote a fantastic book? And it's out. It was out yesterday, Fallen Sky. So I've got an interview with Rajan straight away. Then... It's only a week to go until SofaCon 2 Kickstarter kicks off. I've got the pledges. I'm going to read out the pledges and hopefully try and badge you in the coming to support the Kickstarter campaign for that. Then the main fiction is Ghost in the Machine by Ralph Roberts. There you go. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, we have an interview straight straight up off the belt there with Rajan Khanna. And like I mentioned there, big narrator on Starship Sofa. He's got a great voice and just fantastic. And he's done a, a number of Jeff Ford's stories, if you can kind of place Raj, Raj's voice. Like I say, he's, he's been writing, you know, he's been kind of banging out the short stories and all that. And all of a sudden he's got this new book come out. And I've seen it, and like I say, it's been getting publicity all over the place. And everyone's talking about it probably going to be one of these science fiction books of this year and 2015 and he's he's you know he's a member of that writer's workshop altered fluid which is one of the greatest writer's workshops going so now raj big uh, big day for you this week yep tomorrow my first book comes out now you know like I say most of our listeners or all of our listeners just know you from the you know you've got a, such a kind of unique classic voice for for narrating and i've known for a while you've been kind of dabbling in the stories and that but there's loads of this i've, well, I've seen right around the internet now the hype of this new book of yours coming out and like i say this is your first one and it, it when did you say it was coming out uh it's it's released on october 7th and raj is it does it come through the altered fluid, have you? Because you, I'm sure I've read somewhere, I heard somewhere that you're a member of that writer's workshop. Yeah, I'm a member of the altered fluid altered, uh, yes. writing group. Um, actually, this novel, because it happened really quickly, it, it basically only took a year um, to come out. I didn't actually have time to send this through the workshop, uh, I mean, through the group, but normally I would because they're such a good group and they always give good feedback. But I didn't have time. My my deadlines were so tight that, you know, you like to give people at least a couple of months to read a novel. And I wasn't able to do that. So um, 
I hope it doesn't suffer because of that, but definitely uh, there's you know a possibility for a sequel. So if I do that, I'll definitely send it to the group because they're an amazing group. I mean, you know, and I know you've had you've had Mercurio Rivera on your show as well. Yes, I'm like say everyone kind of knows about this, like, right? That's workshop, and mind you, that must have been. Was that not like a little bit like taking the stabilizers off your bike, you know, and not being able to have that kind of support there for like your big novel? It was a little scary because for a while, the only people who had seen it were me and my agent. And then it, pretty much the only people who, who read it before it went, you know, further into the process were me, my agent and my editor. But luckily, between the two of them, I think they were able to help um, help me move it in the right direction. So uh, my editor is Lou Anders, who just recently announced he was leaving Pyre, who's my publisher, but he was great during the whole editing process. It would, it would suffer. It would have suffered without his, his, uh, his help. Right. So just, just say then we're, we're looking at a little bit of the future then Rajan, it would Lou there be there again for you for another editor or would you go with the kind of the publisher? Well, I mean, Lou's leaving the, the company. So if I, if I have another book with them, I wouldn't be able to work with him, but if I could choose, I mean, he, he was amazing. Uh, you know, his his changes to the book weren't quite so, you know, take out this character, put this in, but they were more about trying to hit the right moments, uh, which is something I think is sometimes hard as a writer to, to, to pull back enough to see. And he helped me with that. But yeah, he was amazing. You know, this, I mean, we'll ask a little bit about the story, but a little bit later on, but you know what? When they came to your pyre, did you did you have this idea, or did you like you say you haven't had time? Did you hit the ground running with it? Kind of, you've maybe had an idea for like a month or two, or is this one been burning around for years? <laughs> it's it's been around for a little while. That the start of the story actually was back in two thousand eight, or maybe even a little earlier. I went to the Clarion West Writers Workshop in Seattle in two thousand eight, and. The idea, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is that you go to this workshop for six weeks and every week you're supposed to write a new short story. So um, we didn't write one for our first week, but basically for five straight weeks, you had to come up with a short story every week and write it. And they encourage you not to come with anything pre-written, although you're allowed to bring, um, you know, like story ideas or prompts. And so... I brought a few files along with me that that had maybe one sentence or two sentences just to give me a starting place. And one of those was what would turn into ultimately this whole storyline. So um, it was this, the, the line was just about a guy who was on an airship floating in the air, waking up one morning. And all I knew was that he was up in the sky and there was a reason he didn't want to go down to the ground. And so I decided that that was going to be uh, the first story I wrote there. And I didn't know what was on the ground. I didn't know what the whole idea was. Um, and so I went to, we had these one-on-ones with teachers. And our first week teacher was Paul Park. And he asked me what I was going to be working on. And I mentioned this idea. And he kind of directed me towards a more science fiction place. Um, I, I guess I'd been thinking it could be a little bit, you know, fantasy oriented or fairy tale or something like that. So anyway, long story short, I, I wrote the story. Um, I submitted it to the group and basically what happens is, you know, we were, I think 19 people and all my classmates gave me feedback. And the the instructor for that week was Mary Rosenblum. She gave me, um, feedback and both the students, several of the students and, um, 
Mary basically told me that there was enough in the story that I should expand it into a novel. So that was back in 2008. So that had been kicking around in my head for a while. Um, and so I'd written the short story that, that set up the characters and the situation. But, you know, in my, in my head, I'd always thought, okay, I maybe, you know, when I have time, I'll sit down and I'll write this story. Um, and it took a while, but I think what happened was I finally clicked into the voice. So it's a, it's a first person story. Uh, it's told by the main character, Ben. And as soon as I got that voice and the way he was going to tell the story, that's when I, when I started working on it. Um, but yeah, so when I started on it, I basically, we, we sent it out before it was actually finished. So, um, I didn't really even know where it was going by the time it got sent out. So that part became very quick, but the story and the world had been percolating in my brain for at least, you know, five years, I guess. That must have been, a, that's actually really nice that when, so you actually, you hadn't finished the story, so, but you, you, you kind of, you read it, just sent it out, hoping to get a bite and did um, Pyre come in straight away or? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, I, I think it was a, a matter of right place, right time, because Lou was looking for something for his, you know, 2014 schedule. And, um, he was looking, I mean, this is what my agent tells me. He was looking for a post-apocalyptic book and mine is post-apocalyptic. So it just seemed like a pretty good fit. Um, but yeah, I mean that there were a few months in there where I had to kind of finish it and I was worried about, you know, making sure the ending was, was good enough, but I think everyone seemed to be okay with it. So we'll, we'll see what the public thinks. <laughs> well, without Raj, without giving too much away, because I know we've kind of got a, a basic premise of it, but tell us a little bit more about the story in your, in your universe. Sure. So it's set in, uh, say a few generations from now, um, after basically there was this, this virus, um, that the apocalypse was the virus and the virus is extremely contagious. Uh, so it's not airborne, but it's, it's transmitted by fluids, but the fluid, you know, basically you get a drop of spit in your eye, for example, you can get the disease. And what the disease does is it regresses people into a kind of bestial animalistic state. Um, so they become these kind of ravening, hungry monsters, basically. Um, and so, in this world that I've created, there's a number of people who have decided to take to the air. And so um, they have airships and they live in the sky and they basically come down to the ground, mostly just to forage for, you know, food or for items that they need um, from the ruins. So so you have this post-apocalyptic landscape below with these monstrous humans um, and then you have these people who live in the sky and my main character, Ben, he's one of these guys who, you know, spent most of his life trying to kind of stay alive. He has an airship. Um, you know, he's, he's a forager. He basically lives off of stuff he can, he can find. Um, and at the beginning of the novel, he's hooked up with a bunch of scientists and the scientists are trying to look for a cure, which Ben thinks is ridiculous because, you know, they're working with, broken equipment and, you know, they don't have the, the benefits of technology, but they've hired him to help look after them and fly them around and protect them while they take samples from, you know, the creatures on the ground. And so that's where it starts out. And, you know, he's not completely comfortable with this because it keeps putting his life in risk. Um, and so that's an early conflict. And then without giving too much away later on, 
you know, his airship is basically his home. It's basically what keeps him safe. Um, it allows him to go where he wants to go and it gets stolen. So that kind of pushes a lot of the action throughout the novel. Well, I'll go on there. I've got hairs on the back of my neck standing up there, <laughs> mind you, because just that premise, you know, like getting, like, say, trapped down on on the ground. Oh, man. Because there's one thing I hear, I mean, this is obviously not going in that your direction, but, like, fast zombies. I always remember, like, 28 Weeks, that film. And yeah. just fast zombies scare the living sh- Oh, I really hate them, you know what I mean? To a point where I like to have a little drink, you know what I mean? Just to kind of calm the nerves. So if your kind of futuristic world is set where, you know, like these things are like fast, do you know what I mean? That must be like a real tension ride, you know. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And and in the first, the when I wrote the early story, you know, when it was like four in the morning and I was reaching for ideas to throw in there, I, I basically took zombies and I threw them in and everyone's feedback for the short story was that you know zombies are kind of you know too too stereotypical um so they definitely though do have qualities of zombies and I agree with you that the fast zombies especially in 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 those movies always freak me out so they they are very similar although they're not dead but they're they're uh they are fast so did you set out then to like scare and shock your reader as well or is it more in like the future with science fiction Raj um I don't know if I set out to to scare people but I definitely wanted to 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 kind of paint this picture of uh of a, a future where it's it's rough you know you, you can die from things that'll kill you on the ground you can die because you know everyone's fighting over a small group of resources so you have you know pirates and 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 you know, people in the sky, you could die because you run out of food, you know, things like that. Because I, and, and it wasn't meant to scare, it's just that I think that that's an interesting backdrop um, to set the story. And, you know, you have my, my two main characters, I guess, uh, you have Ben, who's, whose whole life has been spent on surviving, trying to make sure he has enough food, trying to make sure nothing kills him. And then you have Miranda, who's uh, the the chief scientist, and she is interested in saving everyone and fixing things and trying to cure this disease. And so, you know, these two kind of ideologies about how to deal with this kind of future. Um, And then of course there's the bad guys who just want, you know, to take everything. But, um, but yeah, I I thought it was an interesting thing and not necessarily to scare people, but there are some bleak moments. (laughs) So, what you do now then, Raj? Are you just are you waiting? You know, hope that the the could come the, the call could come for a second novel. Or are you just jumping in with another another idea? You know, a total different universe and writing a novel. Are you going down the short story route? I'm doing a little bit of everything, to be <laughs> honest. Like I I I know you know different people work in different ways. I always like to have a few different things going at the same time. So um, I guess you know because I've been working on talking about this book and doing promotion. Um, I had, you know, I, I had ideas for another book and they kind of solidified. So I've been working on something, um, uh, uh, for the sequel. Uh, you know, I don't have anything, there's no, you know, book deal in place right now, but I, am still, my head is still in the world. So I've been working on that at the same time. I'm also working right now on a young adult book. Um, so, it's, I find it easier to jump back between those two things. Um, and I'm also, 
I took a while off of short stories just because I was working on the novel and it was very different headspace to be in. But um, I'm trying to get back into doing that here and there when I have time because uh, I miss, you know, doing short stories. And it's definitely more gratifying to be able to write something in a, in a month or so and then send it out and get, you know, get at least a response back in a, in a couple months, um, whereas novels are a lot longer. So, so I, I, I guess I'm doing all of them at the same time. Um, so we'll see how that works. Are you are you in a good space when you write, Raj? Are you, you know, are you kind of there's one of these things I like cut the veins to get the words out, or is it quite a, a pleasurable? You know, I'm always fascinated about this. You know, I ask this question all the time with writers, just like because sometimes you, you get the answers back where it's like the worst thing in the world. Do you know what I mean? But this yeah. is the living they're doing. You know what I mean? So I think it changes from day to day. There, I mean, I've started recently. Um, writing in the morning because I find that if I, if the first thing I do is write, then I get it done. If, if I keep putting it off, sometimes it gets pushed back or, you know, you end up stuck somewhere and can't write. And, and I didn't want to do that. So I write in the morning and some mornings I sit down and the ideas are coming and everything's flowing. And I feel like this is amazing. And other mornings I sit down and it's like painful just to put a paragraph together. So it depends on the day, but at least if I get that paragraph out, I, I, I've made more progress than, you know, than I would have otherwise. And I, I think it's, maybe it's not true for everyone, but I've heard other writers say this, that, you know, the worst days you have writing, um, and the best days, if you, if you go back in a couple of months and look at them, you can't always tell which days were which days, you know, you think it's the awfulest paragraph you put together ever. And then you look back on it and it looks like every other paragraph in the book. So, um, and in terms of the, the veins thing, I think I, I rarely, you know, there are sometimes I get emotional when I'm writing, but, um, I'm, I guess I'm trying to cultivate that more, you know, that's actually something I'm aspiring to, which is to get even deeper into, um, you know, getting the emotions on the page. And I think that's something that was a challenge for me definitely when I started. And that's something that I keep trying to push to, because I think, I think that is something that, that translates, you know, it's, it's better to convey the feeling than to try to describe it. Does that make sense? Oh, Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is something I'm still, I'm still working on, you know, like I, I I think there's more bleeding to be done, I suppose. (laughs) That's the way, that's what I like to hear as well, mind. You know, is Fallen Sky, is, was there like a, is there like a, 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 a kind of book closet or something where you've got old novels in there, you know, like where you've tried this and tried the novels or is Fallen Sky, you're kind of the only one you've got complete and we're lucky enough we've got a book coming out in it. Yeah, no, I have, uh, I have a whole folder on my, on my hard drive, which has uh, basically a number. I mean, there's, there's probably, I don't know, definitely more than 10 novels in there in various stages of completion. Um, and this is probably, if I'm honest with myself, this is probably the third or fourth novel that I've actually written. Um, the first couple were, were awful. I, I fully admit that. Um, re- before this one sold, I had written a middle grade book that my agent um, and I had shopped around and didn't quite land anywhere at the time. But I, I still have hope that that'll someday be published. Uh, it was a fantasy uh, novel for kids between say 10 and 13, um, with a frost giant in it, but you know, that's a very different world and, uh, who knows what'll happen with that. But, but yeah, I think that definitely helps too, because, you know, once you've, especially once you've written a a few novels, it, it starts to 
you know, you get a better sense for the feel, even if your first couple were, were bad, but, um, I never give up on an idea. So, you know, I might go back to some of those in the future and pull them out and polish them up. Um, but then of course I always have six more novels I want to write. So <laughs> I need to clone myself and, and you know, well, this show, the actual Fallen Sky will be out because it comes out, if I'm right in thinking, on the 7th of October. Now, this show comes out on the 8th. Can, I don't know if you'll know this, Raj, but is, I guess, the Kindle format, can we get that all over the world in different countries? I don't think so, unfortunately. Right now, um, I think it's only going to be available in North America unless there's a way you can do that. And I'm not really even sure if that's possible. Um, I'm hoping there'll be, that, certain, there'll be certain ways you could do it, but we don't. Right, know, right. But probably way. not ones that I would want you to do. So, um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that we'll have it available elsewhere soon because I know that there was interest. Um, it's just that has to all be handled, I suppose, by by my agent. So uh, I'm hoping that people will like it enough and it'll have enough buzz that, that you know, it'll get picked up all over the place. Oh, we've got our fingers crossed, like I say, because there is so much buzz about this novel, you know what I mean? And it's just like so exciting when, you know, kind of almost a friend of the show is just all of a sudden elevated to like, here we go, this is, the, this is your ride, Raj, to like, you know, hopefully we can get it over here in the UK sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. I have family in the UK and I mean, I'll be sending them a copy of, of, you know, my books, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it would be great to, to be able to, uh, to have the books there and they usually do different covers. So that's always fun to see what kind of covers. Uh, the cover come. actually is quite staggering. I mean, it's, it's a really eye catching one and I, I love the font and everything about it. Who did the cover? Uh, it's Chris McGrath. Um, he's also the guy who's done, uh, the, the Dresden files covers and, um, a a few others that people will probably recognize. Yeah. I got really lucky and it's funny because, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are writers and authors and, you know, you hear a lot of times that you have no input over the cover and sometimes they just give you the cover and say, here's what you have. And one of the first things we talked about was the cover and, um, Lou, my editor basically said, what do you think about Chris McGrath? And I was like, are you kidding me? He's amazing. And so they, they asked for my input in just terms of, you know, things about what could be on the cover. Um, and I wanted to make sure there were at least a few airships in the background just to give the sense of it. Um, but they came back with that picture and I, I was floored by it. I mean, it's, it's, I love it to death. And, you know, I told Chris that too. Um, and, I mean, we, we corresponded a little bit and he said he, he even thought it was, I mean, he liked it. He liked what, what came out of it. Is so the, is the Raj as well with that, what we see on the book cover, is the more that you've seen, you know, was this like a big kind of total image and the, the, you've cr- cropped like say that the, I guess the lead hero, this Ben, they've cropped his image. Is there more, cause what you're wanting to do is to look around him and try and see the, the universe and the world that's in there. Yeah, I know that that's pretty much as far as I know, that's, that's everything. Um, that's all that I've seen, but, but yeah, I like, I I think he did a great job in that he put the character right front and center, but then you, you have these little like bits and pieces that right in the corners of, of the picture that do hint at, at what's going on there. But yeah, I mean, and, and it's, it's a difficult thing too, because, you know, they're the, the visuals of that world are, are kind of 
I, I, I don't know. I think one of the reasons I wrote about a post-apocalyptic landscape is that I find that image, as, as depressing as it is in a way, um, kind of fascinating, you know, crumbled buildings and, and vegetation and, and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I think he did a great job. And, and I honestly, you know, I feel so, so lucky to have had a cover like that on my first book, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, I hope that in the future I can... <laughs> Keep keep having amazing covers. So, can you you know with the story Fallen Sky Raj? Is there a chance you could maybe write a, like a say a short story in that universe? Is the possibilities of that? I don't mean like an extra novel. I mean just like you know branching off in a total different way and just giving her a short story. I think so. Actually, I mean it, it's not something I really thought about a lot before, but but recently, um, you know, the, the thing about writing a novel is sometimes certain characters come into it and you become really kind of enamored with those characters. Um, and so there's a character in the book called Claudia. Um, she's kind of an old friend or yeah, a friend, I guess would be the best way to put it. An old friend of Ben's. And, uh, she was a character, you know, she, she comes into it for a little bit. Um, and as in working on the sequel, you know, I was trying to, get her into it in a bigger part. And, and I wasn't sure that that was going to work. And then I thought, you know, I could just tell one of her stories, you know, that that's completely separate. And one of the things about this novel for me is that it's, it's a mashup of a bunch of different genres. You know, there, as mentioned, there's a bit of a, the zombie genre in there there's post-apocalyptic, there's airships, there's, you know, there's a little touch of Western in there as well, I think. Um, and so I had this idea recently of maybe telling, uh, Claudia's story and, and bringing a bit of noir hard-boiled to it as well. Um, so I, I would be surprised if I don't eventually do that. So, Well, Raj, I, I can't wait for it to come out for you. You know what I mean? It would be just fantastic to see this take off and take off big as well. Like I said, I've just seen loads of like little bits of snippets and it makes you kind of, you know, the PR that Pyre's been doing, it's certainly something's happening because you see these like snippets and you think, oh, that one. And especially you know, join with this cover as well, because, you know, there's not much we can kind of tell just yet, but it, it certainly gets you interested in it. So I'm certainly looking forward to it. Fingers thank crossed you. this takes off big time for you, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Now, I want to kind of ground you as well. Do you know what I mean? You, you will surely, surely be still doing narrations in your lifetime, are you? Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I can't, you know, I, I love doing. It's, it's, it's something that I, I really... I can't see myself, you know, stopping completely. I, I definitely have pulled back a bit just because, you know, time-wise, I, I'm well, I bet. trying to focus on the writing. But it, it's, you know, it, it's also a way, it, it's funny because I, I read other people's books and short stories, obviously, but reading them out loud is is such a different way of processing something. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because you have to put your head in, the, the narrator's space or, or whatever. And it, it definitely, like I get sometimes really emotional doing narrations of people's stories where I don't know if I would so much if I was reading it um, flat or as much if I was reading it in on, on the page. Um, but like somehow taking it in and trying to kind of give it life, it, it affects you very differently. So, so yeah, I, I think I'll keep doing that. Yeah. It's just before you, before you go Raj, is this is this the day job? Is this everything banking on this, or have you got a day job and we're kind of this is like a nice little hobby that could turn into something a lot nicer further down the line? 
Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of writers, I would love if this were my only job and my day job. And I certainly think I have enough ideas to, to keep me going with that. But right now I do have a day job. Um, I work basically in the pharmaceutical industry, so I help support clinical trials. Um, so that is something I've been doing for quite a while now. Um, which is a really, you know, it's some, it's one of those things that I think everyone has an idea about, but don't really know how it works unless you're in it. So, um, but that's my day job and, uh, I do everything else, you know, outside of that. But, um, I will say that the, my current, where I currently am right now, they've been really supportive of, of me doing this and, uh, and yeah, so, so, for, so for, for the foreseeable future, I see myself doing both things, but, but it's nice because it means that I, there have been times when I haven't had a day job and I've been writing and, you know, I, there's less sense of urgency there. I think when I have a day job and I know I only have a few hours a day to write in, the, you know, I try to make sure I sit, sit down and, and get that writing done because um, it's valuable. Raj, what can I say? You know, I'm just so looking forward to this coming out for you there. You know, fingers crossed it just goes all over the place what can i say thanks so much yeah honestly thank you so much for coming on as well yeah no thanks tony thank you for inviting me and and uh maybe i'll come back in the future when i have another book out that would be fantastic until then then <laughs> you, you Great. take thanks care. so much you too thank you Hey, you know what? He is the, one of the nicest men. Lovely man. So, Raj, good luck with that. Yes, I can't wait. And actually, I, I went on to Amazon UK, and it's there. The book seems to be there. So I don't know if it's kind of getting shipped over from America or something. But you can buy it, I think. I think it's £10 or something for the paperback. I'm not too sure about Kindle or anything like that. And as you know, every, most people out there, I'm now Kindle-orientated. So, But please try and get that. And you know what I mean? That's what... He's hit the, the, the nail bang on the head there, Raj, with that fundamental kind of excitement. Do you know what I mean? He's got these things, these these people that are kind of turning into almost, what we talked about, it, not zombies, but almost that kind of frightening thing. Do you know what I mean? Where they kind of, it's like, oh, that's just like the terror or the grip you need to kind of get you through a story. Turn that page, turn that page. And do you know what I mean? He has like, reality smacking you right in the face and i'm not you know what i mean but it just so happens you know it seems this bloody ebola things kicking off now it's it's just been it's in madrid there it's coming through you know and you just think oh hell so gosh i just hope that works out for you do you know what i mean it's like you say it's going to be one of the books of this year and next year good luck sir all the best so Yes, so it's a big saw now. I'll do a few of them saws through the show. It is SofaCon 2. Next next week I do the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter launches for 30 days. And if we can get the funding, £3,000, we will kick it off. And that'll buy software. It'll actually pay some of the, the, the guests that are up there. And that side of it, you know what I mean, just planning it is... is you know, it, it all looks fantastic on paper. Whether we get the funding and get it done, you know what I mean? It's going to be, hopefully, or will be, I always say this, you know, I'm always kind of troubled, but if it gets funded, it will be the, the 14th and 15th of March, 2015, when it goes off. So, pledges, come on. The old desk there. This is what you can get for your money. 
£5 pledge gets you a big thank you and a link to watch SofaCon 2 after the event has finished. This will be kind of the whole thing, and it'll be on YouTube or Vimeo after the event. And it's going to be, I'll make it private, so, you know, you'll not be able to kind of watch it straight away. But once we kind of get it edited and down, then you'll get a link and you'll be able to go and watch it at your pleasure. £10. £10 will get you a one-day ticket to SofaCon 2, plus all of the above, plus Starship Sofa's Stories Volume 1 ebook. So for £10, you can get to pick which day you want to come on, because as you know, it's a two-day event. £15 will get you a one-day ticket to SofaCon, all of the above, plus Starship Stover's 1, 2 and 3 in ebook. Now, here's the nice one. £25 will get you a two-day ticket to SofaCon, all the above, plus three back issues of Lightspeed magazine. For £35, you get a two-day ticket to SofaCon, all the above, plus one-year subscription to SofaNotes Private Members Club. And in there, honestly, there's just oodles at the minute. God, man. I've even just put up a Joe Haldeman How to Write Science Fiction video in there as well. So you get that Private Members Club. For £45, and there's only 10 of these tickets left, or 10 of them, there will be only 10 of them, you get a two-day ticket to SofaCon, Plus, you get a sofa huddle with Joe Haldeman. This is be like a special group where there's 10 years there with Joe Haldeman at a pre-arranged date with Joe. And like you see, just ask him, he'll talk. Ask him about the forever. Oh, man, come on. Things like that. You know, it's like a little private huddle between 10 people and Joe. There's one of them for Kim Stanley Robinson, like I say, Joe Haldeman and David Brin. And David Brin is our guest of honour for this event. So there's three of them, and like I say, there's each of them. And there's actually, no, I say there's a little, because I've got a guest, a special announcement guest later on with, you know, there is that as well for that person. So look out for that. So that's the £45 mark. The £55 pledge is a two-day ticket to SofaCon 2. All the e-books, all the back issues of that Lightspeed magazine, the three copies there, plus a SofaCon signed special signature plate of all the guests. We're going to get them. If you remember the hardback book of Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 1, like we had a special edition where I think it was 20 books and had these inlaid signatures and Dee kind of done this fancy work, artwork around the edges. We're going to get Dee to do that again for all the kind of people. It's like it'll be a print and the signature will be inlaid and then you'll be able to frame it. And looking for that's what I'm quite excited about because, you know what I mean, that's a little bit of history. Do you know what I mean? So that is for the £55. You'll get all of the above above plus that special signature plate now for the hundred pound you will get a two-day sofa con two you get that you get a golden sofa nodes huddle pass which will let you into all the, the, the sofa huddles and like i say there's a few that hasn't been mentioned yet but you will get into the joe haldeman kim stanley robinson and david brin and you'll also get that signature plate as well that is a nice bargain, that one. That, the, the £100 one is a nice bargain. That is £100. For, oh, for 150 Yes, higher, higher to it. For 150 you will get, and I trust us, when I had to fight tooth and nail to get these, and 
Joe, not Joe, I was Joe. Joe didn't, wasn't up for it. But for 150, Kim Stanley Robinson will tuckerize your name into a minor character in one of his books, plus the two-day ticket to SofaCon 2. How cool is that? And again, David Brin will do that as well. And like I say, man, when you're talking about these writers, do you know what I mean? This is kind of, the, these are the, the top ones, man. You, the amount of emails I went backwards and forwards with these two guys, and like I say, I tried my best with Joe Haldeman. You know what I mean? I, I mentioned it first, and it was his wife, Gay, that said, sorry, Tony, no, Joe, Joe's no. It's a bit, a bit, bit late, a bit complicated. Then I had another idea, I kind of sent it off. Then another one, and you know what I mean? It was just like, God loves a try, and I, I tried my heart out to get one of Joe Haldeman. But... For 150, you will get your name tuckerized into a book by Kim Stanley Robinson and David Brin and the two days SofaCon 2 special special thing. And I haven't actually got it on there, but you will get the, the signature plate as well. Now, this is the last one and the biggest one for £1,000. Yeah! <laughs> I'm getting excited myself. <laughs> for £1,000, you will get basically everything that's kind of went in there before. Plus, you also get... The advertising of the show as well, so your kind of name, logo, anything like that, will be incorporated into the artwork on that two-day event. So just say it, Coca-Cola. It'll be alongside Starships over Coca-Cola, and then throughout the whole day events, I will be kind of saying, this show is sponsored by, you know what I mean? Blah, 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 blah. So that is the £1,000 pledge. So there you go. Will that be enough to kind of secure the £3,000 we need to kind of run it? And like I say, what I will be getting with that is paying some of the, the guests on there. I will be getting the software as well and kind of sorting out little things and pieces with the kind of signature plates and all that. And like I say, I'm so excited. Do you know what I mean? What we've got written down, what I've got planned for the 2D event, just you know, on paper, just fantastic. You know, the guests. And like I say, there's some guests that I'm just keeping on the back burner. They're just a like, bang, there you go. I'm getting all excited here, man. Sorry, have a drink of coffee. So that is SovaCon 2, the pledges. Like I say, next week is the Kickstarter. Kicks off next week. Now, I'm getting the video for the Kickstarter coming as well. And what I might do is just play the video next week on the next week's show. We'll see how it goes, see if that's kind of works out, but that's what you might be getting next week. Just a, a big kick up the backside and say, this is it, we're off, we're on, we're running. So please, think about SofaCon 2. So next up is the main fiction, and it is Ghost in the Machine by Ralph Roberts. I'll get a little bio on Ralph. Ralph Roberts is a decorated Vietnam veteran who's worked with NASA during the Apollo Moon program. How cool is that, man? Ralph, way to go. Shake your hand. He built his first personal computer. just gets better. He built his first personal computer in 1976 and has been writing about them on since the first published article, Down with Typewriters, in 1978. Wow, he must know a lot. He has written over 100 books along with thousands of articles and short stories. His bestsellers include the first US book on computer viruses, which resulted in several appearances on national TV. 
classic cooking with Coca-Cola, a cookbook that has been in continuous print for the past 17 years and sold half a million copies. He is also a video producer with over 100 DVD titles for sale nationally in places such as Amazon.com. He has also produced hundreds of hours of video for local TV in the Western North Carolina area, sold scripts to Hollywood producers. Recently, for Packet Publishing, Ralph wrote Selex, open source screenwriting, Google app, Inventor. Wow, man, Ralph. And he's also wrote Google Plus, First Look and Yammer Starter. Ralph and his wife, Pat, live on a farm in the mountains of West North Carolina with two horses. Wow, Ralph, man, how, what a life. And just if you're, if you're interested, Ralph's Ghost of the Machine came out in the second issue of Galaxy Edge magazine. That's the one that Mike Resnick's doing at the moment as well. So if you want to go back and check out stories in that, I'll just give you a heads up what kind of other stories you can find in there. There was an essay by Barry M. Malzberg, short fiction by Tina Goa, short fiction by C.L. Moore, Brad Art Ferguson, we've played some of Brad, David Gerald's in there, Christine Catherine Rush, one of the greatest editors ever there, in my opinion. Fantastic, Christine. So there you go, Galaxy's Edge, Ralph Roberts. This story is narrated by our very own Dennis M. Lane. Dennis from Film Talk, as you know. I'll put a link on to Dennis's little. Dennis has got so much going on, you know what I mean? Just fantastic. Dennis, thank you so much for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Ghost in the Machine by Ralph Roberts. Marcus Teague sat hunched over in the cramped confines of the 16-gigabyte USB thumb drive. The muscles of his mighty arms rippled as he cleaned his wizard's sword, running the polishing spell up and down the blade with precision. It might all be virtual, but he was buff, with bulging biceps, a mighty chest, a narrow waist, bronze skin, ready for any battle. The sleeveless T-shirt, with its mystical symbols in hex and octal, and the Microsoft and Ubuntu certification badges emphasised that. Looks like Bill could spring for a bigger ready room, he said. Maybe a 64 gig thumb drive, or better, a 120 gig solid state drive, huh? He looked up when Oscar did not answer. The old man didn't look good. Battered and bruised, moaning whenever he moved, flat on his back, exhausted. Troubleshooting hardware took it out of you blown power supplies, crashed hard drives, loose cables, and all those intermittent ills that kept Oscar in dark old machines for hours when no telling what was going to jump him. When time permitted, Marcus went along to watch his friend's back. Besides, he enjoyed chopping up fanged viruses, stomping malware data mining dwarfs, tearing apart virus ogres, erasing script dragons and all the rest of it. Bring on the Trojans in their virtual Greek armour. They were no match for the whiz. Marcus shook his head. Oscar had insisted on keeping the same physique. He was the same old man now as the virtual reality helmet-wearing body laying currently on the broken-down couch in the littered back room of Bill Owl's computer repair. Bill Owl's was maybe the most unprofitable computer shop in Chicago, but it had two things no other shop anywhere in the world had. It had him and Oscar. It also had Bill who tried hard, but was the most incompetent shop manager possible. And the shadowy, probably criminal, partner, Al. 
who had bankrolled the place but was never around much. Well, scratch that last. Al hung out in the shop a lot more of late. With some grunting, Oscar managed to roll over a little and looked at Marcus. Bill can't afford it. Shop's losing money, which suits that sleazebag Al just fine. He wants the secret of how we do this. Marcus shrugged and went back to work on his sword. He just wanted to do his job. He liked it, even if minimum wage was all they got. He made all this work after Bill invented the concept, coded it, debugged it, and was the first to try it. This was his baby. He'd given it birth. Virtual computer repair. And, yes, he knew Al, who had to be connected to organised crime, was hot after this technology. That's why the gangster dribbled out only enough funds to keep the shop doors open. Marcus, what do you want out of life? Oscar said. Marcus thought about it and shrugged. Enough money for me to upgrade my hardware at home and to find true love, in whichever order. But I want a 24-core CPU soon. Oscar painfully laid flat again. You won't get them things here. A tone beeped and a work order with an IP address popped up on a tiny virtual screen. For me? Oscar asked, his voice weary. Nope, it's for me. Some guy's computer's running slow and probably full of nasty little beasts. He smiled enthusiastically, gave his sword one more pass with the polishing spell and sheathed it. Grinning, he hoisted his backpack of diagnostic spells and the like. Oscar gave him a disgusted look. Don't enjoy it too much. And be careful. Something weirder than usual is going on out there. Marcus carefully moved to the hatch. You get a call, let me know where, Oscar. And don't hesitate to use that emergency abort utility I wrote for us. The red button. Take it out, flip off the safety cover, press abort. Oscar shook his head. No, not that. You said yourself you weren't sure it would work. No telling what would happen to our real bodies. You said that. Marcus shrugged. Last resort, guy. Just don't get killed. That would mess up your real body even more. At least take some of those routines I built from the data in the Shaolin Temple's computer. Oscar shook his head despondently. Haven't got the energy to use them, Marcus. Worrying about his friend... Marcus flowed into the USB port that led to the shop's dinky server. A hand reached out to help him get to his feet. It was Beep, the USB driver. Thanks, Beep. Beep! You have a good day too, buddy. The server itself was an old quad-core clunker he'd gotten off of eBay for $50, for which Bill still owed him. But it had some memory, the latest version of Ubuntu, and gave him space to write and develop his spells and scripts. He always had been good at coding. One-handed, Marcus air-typed up a large virtual screen with webcam, then smiled at his image. A mixture of Conan the Barbarian and King Arthur's Merlin the Magician, he could swing a sword or wave a wand with the best of them. Blonde, blue-eyed, well-developed muscles, not a bit like his concave-chested, bespectacled, short, geeky body recumbent out there in the back room. A real chick magnet. Unfortunately. All the women who might be impressed were out there in the real world. He waved the screen away and headed for the cable modem port. No fast fibre optic or wireless connection for this cheap shop. 
Uploading was a pain. Slow. He nodded to bits of software as he passed. In this computer, he knew them all and they trusted him. A bunch of little memory monkeys ran by, carrying bits of this and bites of that to here and there, ones and zeros flashing in their beady little eyes. Hi, Marcus! Hi, Marcus! They chanted. Passing the power supply, he patted one of the cables. Sparks playfully tickled his fingers. As a small boy, he'd been fascinated with electricity and quickly made friends with it. That friendship often paid off in his current job. Whoa! Current job! He laughed. Squeezing into the cable modem, he slowly climbed to the nearest intersection with one of Chicago's fibre-optic backbones. This was the problem using just a regular cable connection. Fast download, yes, but slow upload. Servers needed a way to push data out quickly, as well as pull it in. Marcus broke out of the slow upload, like swimming through molasses, and stepped out on the crowded platform. All sorts of things shuffled around, waiting on the next train of data packets. Email messages, SQL commands off to visit some database and retrieve info, lots of web URL queries, always rushing about to keep their human surfers sated. He sensed the attack, even before the monstrous Python script reared its ugly head over the railing at the back of the platform. He dived and rolled as a blast of red-hot electrons struck the spot where he had been. He laid a morse spell on it and didn't see anything to worry him in its code, so no use being nice. Marcus airtyped RM Dragon. His erase code killed the process, wiped the Python file, and the fearsome towering head and body poofed into nothingness. At least he hoped it had. Erasing computer files was not always permanent. He was okay, but the attack had left behind a good deal of destruction. Its deadly breath, missing him, had killed a number of innocent pieces of software going about their legitimate duties. Marcus knelt next to a whimpering, frightened JPEG, an image of a beautiful baby being sent by its proud mother to the baby's grandmother. Now, that image would never arrive, fading away as he held it in his arms. Sadly, he stood, watching the surviving data constructs rush around in panic. This was just wrong. An attempt on him had destroyed good data, useful utilities and other programs. Something very much against his principles. It was all a waste. The attacking script had been crude but powerful. Someone or something out there was ruthless in its hatred of him. Well, he would see about that. He would make it his mission to hunt down this killer. The train of data packets whizzed to a stop and all the data and snippets of code hurried to get on before another dragon could come along. Marcus started to enter a car, and a wall of stench hit his virtual nose. Spam! Of all things in the internet universe, he hated spam the most. Spam, and the evil humans who caused it to spew like so much sewage from their computers. This packet was crammed to the ceiling with the slimy, stinky stuff. All spam must die. He donated them a couple of filter bombs from his backpack, ducking as tons of fragments blew from the packet's sides and, more or less neatly, landed in bit bins on the platform. Satisfied, he moved to the next packet, boarded, and took a seat. He called up a screen and scrolled the work order. Hmm, an anonymous IP address. Not usual, 
and it cost extra. Spammers, hackers, and other evil humans, they like to have anonymous IPs. He had a bad feeling about this. A tall black gentleman, in a three-piece suit, slid into the seat next to Marcus. He held out a cheque for four million dollars, smiling broadly. Marcus tapped the certification patches on his T-shirt. No fishing around here! The software's eyes widened, and he jumped up, motioning several of his kind to turn back. Copper! Run! It's John Law! He yelled in a Nigerian accent. Several pieces of legitimate email nodded their thanks to Marcus. Phishing gave them all a bad name, almost as much as spam did. A stream of porn oozed into the car. Marcus pointed to the next packet and they left. Porn was pretty mindless stuff, but it knew when the whiz was around. Speaking of such stuff, Marcus turned around in his seat, looking for Gwen. He had not seen her in a week or more. Gwen did some racy stuff, but she was a real woman, and far from mindless. Some men paid a lot for interaction. She was the only other virtual human he'd seen down here besides himself and Oscar. They'd had some great conversations riding together. He knew she hated what she had to do for a living. Certainly she didn't want her only family, her brother, who was an attorney with a big firm downtown, ever finding out. Gwen's virtual body was as voluptuous as his was buff. She confided that her real body was a female geek, flat, not curvy. She even had a computer science degree and loved to code, but couldn't find a programming gig, so was reduced to this, her face showed her disgust, job. And she told him about her server. She also favoured Ubuntu as a Linux of choice and mentioned how she had backup virtual reality software on it. He even told him her real name, Gwendolyn Louise Baker. Wow! Beautiful! And she knew computers! And Linux too! What a woman! Marcus surprised himself by hugging her on their last ride. He didn't do well with girls, not nearly confident enough, usually, to initiate affection. What's more... She'd returned the hug. That was the last time he'd seen her. He landed after his wireless jump from the platform via a 40 MB up-and-down connection at the IP address on his work order. It was a very fancy and powerful internet connection with tons of bandwidth, but the port into the computer was foreboding. Dark inside, with a blackened ring around the port where a firewall had once flamed. No telling what had wandered in there. All the place needed was a sign. This is a trap, doofus. Come right in. He pulled out his wand with his right hand and waved a work light sphere into existence with the other. With the bright light preceding him, Marcus confidently walked into the machine. The first software he saw was a keyboard driver. Hey, guy. What computer is this? He asked. Clack, clack, clackety, clack, busy, clack. Clack, the driver said. Master types commands to kill you. Clack, clack, clackety. A sudden whoosh and a wall of heat caused Marcus to whirl around. A white-hot firewall now closed the exit port. He gestured at it to reopen a port. Any port would do right now. But nothing happened. The pounding of heavy boots caused him to spin again. This time to see heavily armed and armoured gigantic troll-like virus fighters 
bearing down on him, waving swords, battle axes, and rifles with wicked-looking bayonets, as long as the rifles. Got it, scoot, dude, the keyboard driver said, rushing off, clacking rapidly again. Marcus groaned. These were no friendly McAfee's or Norton's, rule-abiding virus-squashing officers. No, these guys were coded on steroids. Mean, nasty, powerful. No RM spell would even scratch them. He waved his wand, and his most powerful debug spell sizzled out and hit the first troll. No effect. It should have slowed the monster down to a crawl, and revealed its internal workings. After that, just tear out statements and variables, and it was over. No problem. Except, nothing happened. He unlimbered his sword. Have to do this the old-fashioned way. Chop them into separate subroutines that would fizzle into oblivion. The keyboard driver had returned, slipping to the back of the pack. There was rapid clacking, and as the leading four trolls rushed him, their armour got thicker. Some human programmer was working real-time against him. But the thicker armour added weight, and the trolls' reactions were sluggish now as they struggled in slow motion to ram their bayonets through Marcus. Whoever this programmer might be, he was not very good. Marcus chopped at the trolls with his sword. It wasn't easy, but big chunks were falling off. Clack, clack, clackety clack. The programmer was fast on the uptake. The armour on all the trolls slimmed down, and they duplicated until the memory around him was full of angry, hungry trolls with fast reflexes and anxious to taste his virtual blood. However, their very numbers hampered getting at him, and the computer's CPU was grinding down under the load. Suddenly, the trolls were slow again, and so was the human programmer as he continued to duplicate them, adding yet more load. Marcus chopped a few of them to bits, but he could sense the CPU wavering. And, although his virtual body's code, written by him, was markedly more efficient, he felt like he was fighting in mush now. He didn't want to be here when the computer crashed, like in the next few milliseconds. Hell of a way to die for someone as good at coding as him. Embarrassingly so, even. He switched his sword to his left hand, parried a bayonet thrust while pulling the abort button from his pocket, flipping the safety cover off with his thumb. Holding his breath, he pressed it. Click. Marcus rolled through an open port on the old server in the shop's back room, expanding to full size, and gracefully springing to his feet. He sheathed his sword and... Bill, in his fifties, rotund and bald as the proverbial billiard ball, was coming in holding a cup of coffee. He dropped both the cup and his jaw. The cup shattered, the brown fluid from it staining the ancient, already discoloured, linoleum. But neither Marcus nor Bill noticed that. You're... you're... Bill said with several gasps. Marcus was running his hands over his body. He was the steel-muscled, bronzed hero like his virtual self. Except, it was now real. He spun and looked at the ratty couch where his pencil-necked, geek, real-world body always rested. It was gone. The virtual reality helmet lay empty. Oscar's body was still on the other couch. A sudden sheepish look came to his face. What? Bill asked dropping into a chair and grabbing a parts catalogue to fan his face. I gotta pee, Marcus said. That never happened down in the computer. Bill weakly waved toward their small, filthy restroom. 
In a couple of minutes, a bemused look on his face, Marcus returned. Everything big? Bill said, guessing. Yeah, Marcus said, grinning. Yeah! Then he held up his hands. We need to discuss everything and make a plan of action. I'm recalling Oscar. He went over and seated himself in front of the server, his large fingers flying nimbly over the keys. Still got my computer skills, he said with a smile. The smile faded as nothing happened. Something's wrong, Bill. I can't contact Oscar. That's bad. Better go in and rescue. That won't be necessary, said an oily voice. Marcus jumped to his feet and turned to see Al and two of his goons standing there. All three had large automatic pistols levelled at Bill and him. Al stepped forward and rammed the barrel of his weapon against Bill's ear. Who's Conan the Barbarian over there? I didn't authorise you to hire anyone new. Where's that little wimp you used to have? Bill looked at Marcus. Ah, uh, he's gone. Well, Musclehead there isn't much smarter. Almost got him earlier, but he ran like a little girl. Not sure how, but he got out before the computer slagged itself. You're a lousy coder, Marcus said, which to him was about the worst insult you could hurl at someone. Haven't got time for you now. Get over there against the wall, flat on the floor. Marcus complied, but he wasn't through talking. Where's Oscar? He and your little girlfriend Gwen are my virtual prisoners. Gwen? Yeah, Gwen. I swiped Bill's code one day, got it to work well enough to put her in the machine. Most popular of my pawn rentals, being interactive and all. He took the gun from Bill's ear long enough to wave it at Marcus. You ruined that, going all lovey-dovey with her. Now she wants out, but she ain't getting out. Marcus slapped his head with one hand. It hurt. Encrypt-sensitive software, stupid he said in a disgusted mutter. Al sneered. So, I'm taking Bill here. He's going to improve his code for me, and I'm going to rule spam and porn all over the internet. The gangster pointed at the server. Bring that. Marcus saw Bill, wide-eyed, shake his head. He didn't want Al to know that Marcus was really the one who had written the virtual insertion code. It was his idea, but only Marcus could make that idea work. One of the goons put away his gun, went over and turned the two gnarled knobs to the screws holding the server in the rack. He pulled it out, removed the cords and stuck it under his arm. Al pulled Bill out of his chair and pushed him over to the other goon who grabbed his collar. You, on the floor there. You're fired, Conan. No severance or back pay. Consider yourself lucky to be alive. Then they all left, slamming the front door resoundingly. Marcus got up. The joy he'd felt in his new body, now overwhelmed by despair and fear for his friends. He looked at Oscar's body and the virtual reality helmet on it. 
Somewhere, Gwen's body was laying the same way. He slammed a massive fist into his hand. Al was now in control of his only three friends in the world. Marcus gently put a blanket over Oscar's body, then stooped and grabbed a few items out of his toolbox on the floor. He left quickly, locking the shop and jogging towards his nearby apartment. His server had a backup of everything on it. Too bad for Al. He was getting his friends back, whatever it took. That's what he'd do. As he passed two good-looking young women, he heard, Hot! What a hunk! He grinned, but ran faster. At least this new body stuff was working out. He wasn't even breathing hard. As he crossed the main room of his tiny one-bed, one-bath apartment, Marcus suddenly realised he could hear, and, what's more, sense what was going on in the server he'd mounted in the small closet. Wow! The powers of his virtual body had also been transferred to his physical, real-world body. He waved his fingers, and a virtual terminal floated in the air in front of him. Cool! There was a crackling at an empty power socket. He waved at his friend Electricity. That was not new. He'd always been able to communicate with it. He grinned at the glowing air terminal. It reminded him what one of his professors in tech school had been fond of saying. Computer science is 90% theory and 10% magic. Marcus was sure now that 10% was a whole lot larger than that. And he was the whiz. It was a good feeling. But that good feeling vanished almost immediately. Everything he now had would mean nothing to him if he couldn't save his three friends. Gwen, Oscar and even Bill. They were all he had. Waving his fingers at the terminal, Marcus made certain his server was still secure. The backup virtual reality program still ran, and all was in order for a rescue mission. Then he slapped his head. He'd forgotten to grab his virtual reality helmet. But he opened the closet door. It just felt right. So he dived into the one open USB socket on the front panel and slid into the server. Two virus-tromping trolls were sitting on empty data containers, playing cards. They looked up at his entrance. Oh, hiya, boss, one said. All's secure. Marcus nodded, clapped them on the shoulders, and motioned them to go back to playing. Even software needed some relaxation. He walked over to another data container and sat down to think, creating another virtual terminal. A couple of ideas came. He implemented one of them, bringing up Oscar's virtual body configuration script. The old man had wanted to be the same down here as in the real world, but that was not working out too well. Marcus's fingers flew as he beefed Oscar up, giving him youth, muscles, various powers, including all the Shaolin Temple Kung Fu routines. Marcus was very proud of those. You do a Bruce Lee on a nasty piece of software, and it stayed down. He then compiled the configuration file. He might not be able to easily find where Oscar was, but his virtual body regularly checked its configuration, and whoever was holding Oscar was going to have a surprise on their hands. While he was at it, he set up a configuration file for Bill too. If Al threw him into a computer, there would be two mighty warriors, both yearning for Al's blood. Four, of course, counting him and Gwen. If only he could find her computer and modify her config file. It was now obvious to him that Al was her boss, 
and the VR software they had was the early version Al had ripped off from Bill. Lots of improvements since then. Now for the second part. None of this would probably work unless he could find and get into Al's computer, which was surely locked down and strongly protected against that very thing happening. But he had an idea. Gwendolyn Louise Baker's address was easy to find, and not far away at all. Closer than going back to the shop and probably safer, since Al did not know about her computer. She told him that. Besides, as he'd already decided, he needed to update her virtual reality software. Be alert, guys, he said to the trolls, and dived out the USB port. His open spell worked on her apartment door, and his friend Electricity kindly disabled the alarm system for him. He slipped in and relocked the door. The apartment was even smaller than his. And there she was, her body that is, lying on her bed with the VR helmet on. She was a little chubby, she hadn't mentioned that. Short, with not much of a figure, and as geeky as she'd said. But Marcus knew he loved her anyway. Heart pounding, he found her server. Not bad, old Power Edge, 20th generation. But those had plenty of reliability and capacity. He dived into the USB socket and was immediately challenged by three huge female virus protection trolls, sharp swords poised. Halt! Password! Uh, Marcus said, not wanting to hurt any of Gwen's software, but knowing he had to get through. Wait! One troll said. That's Marcus! She likes him, said the second. A lot! the remaining troll added. His ears doing a virtual burn, Marcus quickly explained to them what he needed and how it would save Gwen. The trolls nodded and lowered their swords. VR software starts at memory address 3DFF000, one said. We're alerting the CPU to have a packet ready for you, said another. That way, said the third, pointing. Marcus pounded down a long memory bus and came to the address. The CPUs were holding a refresh packet for him, and he jumped on it. But they made no objection to him first updating the VR software, throwing some Shaolin Temple Kung Fu routines and other stuff into Gwen's config file, and then recompiling it. Gwen's got the boyfriend, Gwen's got the boyfriend. Some of the memory monkeys were chanting. Then it was onto the data packet and, clinging precariously to a couple of protruding bits, he whizzed along. Marcus flowed through the VR refresh port into Al's main server. The heavily armoured trolls ignored this authorised traffic. He rolled off the packet, landing on his feet with poise as he entered a cordoned-off section of RAM, serving as a cell for Gwen, Oscar and Bill. He was so glad to see them. And he recognised the server he was in. It was the one from the shop. Miss me? he said, grinning. Gwen rushed over and threw her arms around him, resting her head on his shoulder. Oscar and Bill patted him on the back. Reluctantly, he disengaged from Gwen. We've got to hurry, he said. What's been happening here? Not much, Gwen said. Al's ignoring us. Ever since they got their new bodies, these two have been going over in the corner, looking at themselves and chuckling a lot. She looked at Oscar and Bill. It's just virtual size, guys. Uh, no. Marcus said. This is now my real body. 
We need to convert you guys so that you can help me demolish Al. All three nodded at him. They liked that idea. Marcus took out the red buttons he'd grabbed from his toolbox. He handed one to each. All set up. Flip up the cover. Press abort. He held up his hand. Not yet! Bill gently eased the cover closed again. Marcus waved up a terminal, and the screen showed the view outside the computer. Al and his two goons were there, eating pizza from a delivery box. Hey, even disorganised criminals have to eat, he acknowledged silently. Here's the plan, he said. When Oscar and Bill press their buttons, they'll be up there with Al and his gorillas. Kung fu the hell out of them, guys, before they can get their guns out. You know how, now. What about me? Gwen asked. Marcus smiled at her. Your button deposits you outside the server in your apartment. Your old body will be gone, and you will be you. Oscar, feeling his oats after years of being old and feeble, gave a wolf whistle. Gwen stuck her tongue out at him, but smiled. Then come back here, and help us mop up. But where is here? Marcus typed in the air and data streamed on his virtual terminal. No encrypting of personal or business data for Al, hey? He stopped the scrolling. There, 6701 Greenview Avenue. Not too far from your apartment, Gwen. Let's do it. She nodded, opened the cover on her button, and hovered a finger over it reluctantly. Marcus surprised himself again. I love you. Press it, Gwen. She looked at him, smiling radiantly, and did. Whoosh! She was gone. He airtyped to the terminal and sent a video request out through the open refresh port. There she stood in her apartment, looking with awe at the image of her new body in a mirror. Move it, honey, he said. Gwen jumped at his voice, but waved and ran out the door. So, are we waiting on her? Bill asked. Nope. Press your buttons on three. One, two, three. They landed with silent grace, already in kung fu stances. Al and his two goons barely had time to drop their slices of pizza before they were disarmed and trussed up with electric cords ripped from a lamp, a fan, and the coffee maker. Oscar and Bill took turns going to the restroom. Marcus waved up a screen in the air, pulled over a chair, and then, with occasional suggestions from Bill or Oscar after they returned, demolished Al's porn and spam empires. He was especially careful to erase all mention of Gwen's work for Al. No need for her to be embarrassed during the investigations that were sure to come. The office door slammed against the wall under a powerful open spell, and Gwen stormed in, looking like an avenging goddess. Seeing the trust of gangsters, she slid to a halt. I'm sorry we didn't wait for you, Gwen, Marcus said. But they were a pushover. She shrugged. Now what? Bill asked. Gwen raised her hand. I thought about that running over here. They all noted that she was not a bit out of breath. My brother is a patent attorney with the biggest intellectual property firm in Chicago. She smiled. You'll all be rich and Marcus can make sure all this, she ran her hands up and down her awesomely curvy body, is used for the betterment of humanity. And software, Marcus added. We're rich. Gwen, you too. Oscar and Bill nodded enthusiastically. Guess we should call the cops, huh? Gwen took his arm and gently pulled him toward the door. Let Bill and Oscar do that. I need you to check my computer. 
She smiled a smile that would melt steel and then temper it into something stronger than before. Bill shrugged and winked. Race you back, Gwen yelled, already out the door. Marcus pounded after her. Oscar looked at Bill. Big? Huge, said Bill. I love computers, Oscar said. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ralph. Ralph, what can I say? Thank you so much for that. And Dennis, just a cracking narration. Thank you so much. So that is show 357 put to bed. Like I say, it's a big month for Starship so far. Hopefully you'll certainly get behind me and help out and try and get this Kickstarter funded to have like... Just, I want to kind of establish this like kind of SovaCon as, you know, an, an annual event and kind of just get it snowball and get it bigger and bigger. And the only way I'm going to kind of do this is get it kind of funded and kick-started. So that would be fantastic. It's happening next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.